Amen. Let's, let's open in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we're so thankful that only You can take ordinary lives and turn them into extraordinary vessels for Your kingdom. Only You can take the mundane and turn it into the miraculous. You inject purpose into our lives and promise into our days, Lord. May we be found in a place ready for Your use and for Your glory. Visit with us now, Father, as we look into Your Word. Bless our time together and give us open hearts, ready to listen and receive what You have for us. In the precious name of Your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, He was born into an ordinary family, living in an ordinary house, in an ordinary town. But when all was said and done, he would be looked back on as one of the most extraordinary lives in American history. Audie Murphy was born into a large family of sharecroppers in Hunt, Texas, Hunt County, Texas, on June 20th, 1925. He was raised in a sharecropper's dilapidated house, and after being told by a teacher that he'd never amount to anything of value, Audie dropped out of school in the fifth grade. And he got a job picking cotton for a dollar a day. His father drifted in and out of the family's life until he finally deserted the family for good in 1940. Audie's mother passed away a year later. He always wanted to be a soldier. And after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 41, he tried to enlist. But the Army, the Navy and the Marine Corps all turned him down for being underweight and underage. He was the very definition of ordinary or even below average. Well, after his sister provided a, an affidavit falsifying his birth date by a year, he was accepted into the U.S. Army on June 30th, 1942. After basic training at Camp Walters, he was sent to Fort Meade for advanced infantry training. He would eventually be deployed and he would engage in numerous battles in Morocco and Italy and in France, his military career would span just three years. And when he was discharged in September of 1945, he became the most decorated U.S. soldier in World War II. Though he was only 21 years old at the end of the war, he had killed 240 German soldiers. He had been wounded three times and he had earned 33 awards and medals. He returned home from Europe a hero. He was greeted with parades and elaborate banquets. Life magazine honored the brave baby-faced soldier by putting him on its cover in July 1945. Now a civilian, Murphy was inspired to turn his attention to Hollywood and become an actor. Though he was discouraged, a number of agents and studios told him his baby face was too ordinary. There's nothing special about you. Well, two decades later, his acting career had spanned radio, television, and over 40 films. This ordinary sharecropper's son then turned to his love of music. He had always loved and had a natural gift for writing poetry. So he would go on to write 18 hit songs recorded by artists including Dean Martin, Porter Wagner, Roy Clark, and Eddie Arnold. On May 28, 71, Murphy was killed when the private plane in which he was a passenger crashed into Brush Mountain in Virginia. He was buried with military honors at Arlington National Cemetery. 
As a Medal of Honor recipient and a Hollywood celebrity, his was one of the largest military funerals ever held to date. The headstones of Medal of Honor recipients buried at Arlington are normally decorated in gold leaf. But he had previously requested that his stone remain plain and inconspicuous like that of an ordinary soldier. It's quite a story, quite a life story, isn't it? A young man who was labeled as barely ordinary ended up leading one of the most extraordinary lives in American history. It's a story that's repeated quite often throughout scriptures, isn't it? The unexpected transformation. We've seen God do it time and time again. We've seen Him take the ordinary and turn it into something extraordinary. From water to wine, from a shepherd boy to a king. God loves taking the outcast, the throwaway, the discarded, the unused, the overlooked, and transforming them into a magnificent vessel of honor. You think it can't happen to you? Guess again. God is still in the business of transformation. God is still in the business of the unexpected rise from the ordinary to the extraordinary. That's our topic today. From the ordinary to the extraordinary. And we're going to look at three very ordinary things that God loves to transform into the extraordinary. Three things that we might overlook as mundane, unimportant, ordinary, even holding us back, that God transforms into something special, that God uses in our lives to transform us into something special. We might think these ordinaries hold us back, but we might be surprised to find out just how present God is in the ordinary. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning or look up at the video screens to our first text, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 18 to 22. And here Jesus is just beginning His earthly ministry. And He's calling His first disciples. Matthew 4, 18 to 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Our first point today, God uses ordinary lives. God incarnate has come down to dwell with men and begin his ministry of of miracles and teaching. And, And he's ready to select his first followers. These would be important men. Men who would go on to represent Jesus wherever they went. They would go on to establish the church as we know it today. To spread the gospel of Christ and to light the fire of Christianity throughout the world. Where would Jesus go to select such stellar individuals? Think about it. Where, where would He go? Temples, possibly. Universities. Government offices. No. He went to the shore and, and pick the fishermen. 
common laborers to be the forerunners of Christianity. He would later go on to call Simon a political anarchist, Matthew a tax collector, the most hated profession of all time. All in all, Jesus chose 12 men whose resumes were ordinary at best, questionable to a critical eye. How on earth would he accomplish anything with this lot? None of his 12 disciples brought credentials into their roles. Most came from modest backgrounds with little distinction, an eclectic collection with run-of-the-mill talents. None of them had a theological degree. Not one fit the mold of rising religious star. Yet they became the chosen vehicles to carry Jesus' timeless message of hope. Now, if it were up to us, we'd have a long list of requirements, wouldn't we? We'd have qualifications that were needed for the job. We'd require extensive expertise. We'd sift through resumes. We'd have lengthy interview processes to, to narrow down the candidates. We'd select the most intelligent, articulate, influential men of the times. Educated men with the finest of pedigrees. We'd select the, the, the greatest thinkers, captains of industry, public administrators, orators, and strategists. But God's ways are not our ways. Amen? A few years back, Tim Hansel wrote a fantastic rhetorical letter to Jesus analyzing the selected disciples. He wrote to Jesus, son of Joseph, wood, wood carf, crafter's carpenter shop, Nazareth, 25922, from Jordan Management Consultants, Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we've not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologists and vocational aptitude consultants. The profiles of all tests are included, and you'll, you'll want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we... We make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. Here it is. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They don't have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience. Experience in managerial ability and proven capability. For instance, Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a very questioning attitude. It's troubling and will tend to undermine morale. We feel it's our duty to tell you also that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. He's a self-starter and a go-getter. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. 
All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. That's how the world would assess these 12 men, isn't it? Jesus, choose, choose more accomplished men. Choose more educated men. Lord, choose more experienced men. But God's ways are not our ways. He chose men that He could build up His way. He wasn't looking for what they already had or what they already were. He was looking for what they could become. Jesus chose men who would let God mold them from ordinary ordinary fishermen or tax collectors into mighty apostles. That's what God does, doesn't He? Your background doesn't matter. Your heritage does not matter. Your pedigree doesn't matter. What took place before doesn't matter. Your upbringing doesn't matter. What matters is what you allow God to do with you starting now. Stop looking back. Stop thinking your past is holding you back. God resets the clock. Nehemiah was living in Persia in complete obscurity when God called him. He was a cupbearer and God called him to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Mary was a nobody. She was a, a teenage girl living in Nazareth when God called her to be the mother of the Messiah. One of the godliest of Israel's disappointed and disappointing lineage of kings, Asa, he was a son of godless parents. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your past was. But look, I'm just an ordinary person. It's such a common excuse. Ever since we're young, what's our exposure to the Bible? Sunday school's inadvertently to blame for this one. We read story after story of these amazing heroes and amazing feats. We read about David dropping Goliath, Elijah at Mount Carmel, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, Noah and the Argidian and his 300, Joshua's demolition derby, Samson's strength, Paul's insights, Peter's charisma, Stephen's boldness. And we think we have to be a superhero for God to use us. But we don't much focus on the backstory, do we? We don't focus on what they were before they became. If we did, we'd realize these were just ordinary people that allowed God to use them. Ordinary people that surrendered their wills and their ways and their futures to God. And that's when the extraordinary happens. That's when God steps in. That's when God begins to build. But I have nothing to offer God. Friend, what did the disciples have to offer God? Do you think God needed their acute fishing skills? I'm not even sure they were good fishermen. We, we know they crumbled in the middle of a storm on the sea they worked on every day of their lives. We know they spent an entire night fishing and caught zero fish. So I'm not even sure their, their only one skill set was that good. God didn't need their only skill set. They literally had nothing to offer God except one thing, their willingness. When Jesus came calling, they answered the call.
Come follow me, Jesus said. And immediately, at once, they left their nets and followed him. Wow. That's faith. Immediate willingness. They didn't need convincing. They didn't need coaxing. They didn't initiate a debate with Jesus. Let me, let me ask around, get some background on you. Let me pray about it, talk with my family, and I'll get back to you, okay? No, immediate willingness. They didn't waffle back and forth. They didn't create a list of pros and cons. God was looking for one single quality, wholehearted willingness. And He's still looking for that today. Friend, if you have that, you have everything God needs in a vessel. When He calls you, answer the call. Be willing to serve. Be willing to go out for Him. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. That's inspiring that's flattering but what qualified us for this extraordinary designation our willingness our willingness to open our hearts and accept his offer of forgiveness and receive his salvation that's all it took our willingness to obey him and answer the call whenever and in whatever he asks that's the spirit that's the spirit and the attitude He desires from us. Not drudgery and duty. Not I'll follow till, till something better comes along. No, He wants wholehearted, throw yourself and everything you've got into it willingness. We've heard the quote many times, God is not interested in your ability, but in your availability. God wants your availability. He wants your willingness to serve Him, to serve others, and to grow closer to Him. That willingness is a living expression of faith and obedience to God. Amen? That's how we live out our faith. Trust God enough to be willing to answer His call. And when He calls, go where He sends. Befriend who He brings. Your ordinary life becomes extraordinary when you're willing to go the distance for God. That's our first point. God uses ordinary lives, ordinary backgrounds, ordinary people. And with our willingness, faith, and obedience, He can use those lives to accomplish the extraordinary. Our second point, God uses ordinary jobs. Here we turn to the story of David, a young shepherd boy, youngest son of Jesse, for David, day-to-day life consisted of watching sheep graze. His older brothers all had exciting jobs serving in Israel's army under the leadership of King Saul, who was beloved. Their days were filled with the excitement of military strategy, political pl- uh, planning, physical preparation, adrenaline rushes, field battles, celebrations. But for David, life was filled with sheep, watching sheep, feeding sheep, leading sheep, protecting sheep, counting sheep. There was no glamour. There were no celebrations, no victory songs, 
No tales of glory, just sheep. To call his job mundane would have been dressing it up. I'm sure David dreamed of serving in King Saul's army like his brothers. But how was he ever going to learn combat skills watching sheep? He had a job to do. Well, a curious thing happened on the way to his dream. In the rut of his day-to-day shepherd job, David became really good at what he did. He put his whole heart into his job. He became an adept shepherd. And when explaining his job later to King Saul in order to get permission to fight Goliath, we read this in 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 37. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, he's speaking of Goliath, will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Did you catch the skills David picked up in his mundane, ordinary job? Hand-to-hand combat. Well, hand-to-paw combat, at least. In protecting his father's sheep, he became a warrior. He learned how to defend, how to attack, how to track, how to rescue, how to fight. He became a crack shot with a sling. And he developed an unbelievable confidence in God. Since he had defeated lions and bears, which should have devoured him and the sheep. That very ordinary job that he may have thought was a waste of time became the training ground for the extraordinary challenges he would face. God taught him how to slay lions before he faced a giant. God taught him how to shepherd sheep before he would shepherd a nation. Friend, that ordinary job, that ordinary role that you may think is unimportant and leading to nothing may very well be preparing you for far greater challenges. It's your preparation ground. And God is in that ordinary job. Follow David's example and do it to the best of your ability with all your heart. Do it with all your heart. It doesn't matter what your job may be. You you may be a CEO. You may be a mailroom clerk. Whether you're flying around the globe in meetings or raising kids at home, put your whole heart and all your effort into your work. And remember that God is in that job with you. Colossians 3.23-24 reminds us, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's the key. And if you're into bumper sticker philosophy, you've probably seen the axiom, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. For a vast portion of the workforce, that's the best reason they can muster for going to work each day. I have to. Well, according to one poll, only 43% of American office workers are satisfied with their jobs. In Japan, the figure dips to 17%. 
In the first century, Christian slaves had even less reason to be enthusiastic about their work, but Paul gave them a way to grasp a glimpse of God and glory amid the grind. He wanted them to adorn the doctrine of God, that is to show the beauty of their faith in Christ by how they work. A significant and often overlooked way that we serve God is in our everyday tasks. Martin Luther understood this when he wrote, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Friend, God cares about that job that you think is just ordinary. He's in the mundane. He's in the day-to-day. He was there with David as he watched those sheep and he was developing a king. He's with you every moment of your workday. Give it your all. He's with you in every ministry, no matter how, how small you think it may be. Give it your all. Be diligent. Be consistent. Be faithful. What makes you think that God can trust you with big ministries if you're not faithful in little ones? Luke 16.10 explains, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If you think your job or your ministry or your role doesn't matter, guess again. If God has ordained it for you, if God has asked it of you, if God has placed you in it, it matters. And more than mattering, it has a purpose. It has a purpose. You might not know it right now. You might not see it right now. But God has a purpose for the task. God is using it to work in you, to prepare you, to train you. Don't miss the lesson because you overlook the task. Don't miss the training because your heart is fixated on something bigger, something greater, something else. Do you think David had any clue that his shepherd job would lead him to become king of the nation of Israel? No idea. He lived in the moment. He performed his responsibility to the best of his ability with all his heart. Let's follow suit. Because no matter how ordinary we think our job or our ministry may be, God is there in it with us. And He wants to use that ordinary to prepare us for something extraordinary. God uses ordinary lives. God uses ordinary jobs. And our third point, God uses ordinary relationships. We turn to the story of Ruth. Let's read her story. It's a a beautiful story. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Eli Melech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Eli Melech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. One named Orpah, the other named Ruth. And after they lived there for about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. 
When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Verse 8, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. What a wonderful spirit of kindness and loyalty. She didn't have to stay with Naomi. Legally, Naomi was no longer her mother-in-law. There was no tradition. There was nothing legal. There was no obligation to stay with her and take care of her. No one faulted Orpah for going back to her parents and her family when her husband had died. The same was expected of Ruth. But Ruth refused to leave Naomi. God had placed Naomi in Ruth's life and Ruth believed there was a reason for that. She kindled that relationship. She protected that relationship. And that loyalty and kindness and faithfulness would catch the eye of a certain field owner named Boaz. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Eli Melech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Eli Melech. Ruth would glean from Boaz's fields. Gleaning is the custom of, of following a harvest so that what remains might be used primarily for the poor who had little or no means of supporting themselves. These disenfranchised people are often the widows, the elderly, who have lost their husbands or relatives due to death or abandonment, and they have no other means to survive. There's a law of God that commanded this in Leviticus 23.22. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, 
Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. God cares about every little detail, doesn't He? So Ruth did that. She gleaned from Boaz's fields to provide food for herself and for Naomi. And Boaz took notice. He showed kindness and generosity to Ruth by letting her collect the first grains from the harvest. Verse 10, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The love story would continue. And soon enough, Boaz and Ruth would be married. And they would have a son they would name Obed. Boaz found a wife. Ruth found love again. Naomi had a grandson. And it's a happy ending for all involved. The story is a beautiful one. But it's often overlooked in Scripture. No war was won. No, no giants were slain. No kingdoms were toppled. It could be hardly made into a Hallmark movie. Guy meets girl at work. Girl turns out to be a widow living with her former mother-in-law. Guy uh, falls in love with girl, marries her, and they have a baby. Nice. But ordinary. But what we don't immediately notice is that baby, Obed, would grow up to have a son named Jesse. And Jesse would have a son named David. Yeah, that David, King David. And from that lineage, hundreds of years later, Jesus was born. That ordinary love story that produced that ordinary baby became the instrumental arrival of God's Son to this earth. And it all started with that ordinary relationship that Naomi had with Ruth and Ruth refused to give up on. C.S. Lewis wrote, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked with a mere mortal. Put another way, every human contact has eternal consequences. Every day we have opportunities to make a difference in the lives of people around us through the quiet witness of a faithful and gentle life or through encouraging words to a weary soul. Never underestimate the effect a Christ-like life can have on others. If God has placed a person in your life, cherish them. Protect that relationship. Work on that relationship. Devote time and effort and faithfulness to that relationship. Don't be too quick to overlook that in-law or that co-worker, or that neighbor that God has placed in your life. God placed them there for a reason. He can take that relationship that you think may be nothing special, that you think may be just ordinary, and bring out of it something extraordinary. Did Ruth's loyalty and faithfulness to Naomi pay off? Big time. Had she disregarded it, she may have never met Boaz. She may have never remarried. She may have never had a child. And she certainly would not have found herself in the lineage of Jesus Christ. 
What an honor. What a privilege. Friend, honor the relationships God has blessed you with. Foster them. Be a friend. Be an encourager. Be a blessing. Don't view them as just ordinary. Don't view them as a waste of your time because God uses relationships to accomplish great things. Ordinary lives, ordinary jobs, ordinary relationships. They aren't very ordinary at all, are they? When God is involved, they aren't. If you're listening today thinking your ordinary life has no purpose, guess again. God can take every piece of the ordinary and turn it into something extraordinary. The only thing you're missing isn't a better background, a better job, better relationships. It's Jesus. When Jesus Christ takes hold of your life, be ready for an amazing transformation. If you don't know Him as your personal Savior, don't wait another day to invite Him into your heart and into your life. Only God can transform the the ordinary into the extraordinary. And dear believer, your life your background, your upbringing, your job, your relationships, all those things that you think may just be ordinary. Submit them to God. Be open and willing to answer His call. Whatever it may be, whenever it comes, be faithful in the tasks, the jobs, the ministries that He has called you to do and foster the relationships with which He has blessed you. If you do, you will see the blessings of God's transformation. You will see Him use the ordinary in extraordinary ways. And you'll look back and marvel at how God used you to accomplish such great things. I'll close with this classic poem from Myra Brooks. It's entitled, The Touch of the Master's Hand. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he, he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a, a dollar, then two, only two? Two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, He played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said, what am I bidding for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars? And who'll make it two? Two thousand? Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not quite understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the Master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. From the ordinary to the extraordinary.
only through the touch of the Master. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're in such awe of Your transformative power. We're in such awe at how You take something so ordinary, so overlooked, so disregarded, and, and turn it into something so vital, critical, and extraordinary. Lord, we give You all of ourselves. We give You our talents, our time, our jobs, our relationships. And we ask that You use all of it for Your kingdom, for Your glory. Help us to be faithful in the day-to-day mundane parts of our lives. Help us to be aware of Your presence with us in everything we do. And help us to be vigilant of the relationships You've given us. We know that on our own, Father, we are nothing special. Just broken, empty vessels. But in You, with Your power and our faithfulness, we can become mighty vessels of honor. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for wanting us. And thank You for giving Your very Son to die for us and redeem us back to You. In His precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.